All right, all right. Well, thank you for being here today and spending part of your Memorial Day weekend with us. When I was a kid, we used to go, uh, my parents were divorced when I was little. And so Memorial Day weekend was always when I would start the summer visitation with my dad and that side of the family. And we used to go several years in a row, we went down to Table Rock Lake. Anybody ever go to Table Rock at any point, a little vacation? Yeah. Uh, and so, man, this one particular year we went and we, listen, we, we did like camped. And I don't mean like glamping, we did camping like in a tent, like men do. I hated it. But anyway, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but we, uh, there's this one particular year, we were, all the dudes were out fishing and we had rented a boat and I was, I don't know, I was probably 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And we were out on the lake and it was kind of one of those, one of those deals where it, in about 15 minutes, it went from sunshiny and beautiful to lightning. Like it was like wicked quick. And it, but it was like the best fishing in the history of fishing. Like it was an awesome day. And listen, I don't particularly like fishing because most of, well, I saw a t-shirt that said this one time, there's a fine line between fishing and holding a pole looking stupid. <laughs> and holding a pole looking stupid defines almost every single one of my fishing stories, right? So I don't really have any fishing stories where I'm able to go like, and it was this big. Right? I don't, my fishing stories are like, and I lost 12 lures. That's most of my, so anyway, so we were fishing and it was amazing. It was actually a good day of fishing. We're having a great time. The storm came up out of nowhere. It was nuts. And so we waited. It's like, well, maybe it won't be that bad. But then it was like, you know, gale force winds and like waves on the lake kind of thing. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And so we're, you know, it's a process once you decide to be done fishing and you're in a boat, right? Like you gotta, you gotta go all the way back over to the boat dock and you, somebody's gotta go get the truck and the trailer backing in and all that, right? By the time we got to the campsite, my stepmom, my two aunts, and my grandmother are literally digging trenches with sporks to redirect the water away from the tents. And it was not necessary to use words because the, the physical body language description was very clear that if we do this again next year, it better involve a Holiday Inn because <laughs> I ain't doing this again. So that's probably part of the reason why I hate camping. Um, if, you know, my version of camping involves a king-size bed and a bathrobe. You know what I'm saying? I don't care if you think I'm less of a man. I don't care. You can get over it. It doesn't even matter to me. Uh, hey, how many of you guys, just real quick, uh, how many of you, when you were kids, you spent some time in a youth group uh, of some, some type? We got some hands. All right, awesome, awesome. I don't know what it was like for you guys, but when I was a kid, uh, the youth group I was a part of, like middle school through first part of high school, there was only about, I don't know, maybe 20 kids or so in this youth group. And we always did kind of our youth group thing Sunday afternoons. And so uh, one of the things that our youth pastor made a really big deal of is every, every time we would get together, he would go around the room and everybody would kind of share their prayer requests. And I don't know how long it's been maybe since you sat in a circle of teenagers sharing prayer requests. It's kind of a mixed bag, <laughs> right? Because you'll have like some of the kids, like the younger kids that are praying that their Xbox gets fixed. And you got, a, and you got another kid that's like praying that their gerbil doesn't die. And then you got another kid that's pray, that that's, goes on a 10-minute ramble of a prayer request about their cousins, friends, aunts, best friends, sisters, nephews, brother. 
and they need us to pray for them. And you're like, what is their name? I don't know, but we need to pray for them, right? And then like, right, like in the midst of that, then you'll have like, hey, my parents are getting a divorce and my aunt just got diagnosed with cancer, right? So like all of that, just this weird like emotional roller coaster, listening to kids sharing their prayer requests. And I don't know what it was like for you, but, but in my youth group, there would always be like, you know, three or four dudes that would always go, I have an unspoken prayer request. Unspoken. Which I always thought was weird because everybody knows what the unspoken prayer request is. Right? Like, we're talking about teenage dudes (laughs) in youth group at church. Homie, we know what you're praying for. All right, some of the ladies, my wife would have been, like that would have gone way overhead. Ladies, you have to ask your husband, maybe on the way home, what are they praying for? But like, we know what they're praying for, right? So unspoken is really just a spiritual sounding way of, I'm kind of dealing with this thing that every teenage dude deals with, but I'm in church and I'm with girls and I ain't about to talk about it. I'm kind of ashamed about it, a little embarrassed about it. And I don't think anybody else deals with it but me, but I'm gonna say, I have an unspoken prayer request. Y'all priests pray for me. And then three or four dudes, you know, pray for the same thing. I didn't really appreciate the humor of that until I became a youth pastor. And like, I would just call kids out. Like, particularly when it was just a circle of dudes. Kid would go, I have an unspoken prayer request. I said, no, you don't. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I do. No, you don't. Take them to the book of James. You can't find healing unless you confess your sins one to another. Boy, tell us what you're working through. The danger of that is the rest of the, the, rest of the small group time would be spent talking about that subject. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I've titled today's message Unspoken, and I'll explain why um, in just a little bit. But before I, before I get into it, I want to spend just a little bit of time um, and maybe kind of explain, explain why we're approaching the topic that we're approaching um, and, and why we're doing it so carefully. And it's for a few reasons. Number one, the topic we're going to be talking about today is, is a topic that is, is not short on opinions. And, 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 and not just like the kind of opinions where someone's like, oh, I don't know, I kind of think this. No, this particular topic usually is very, very polarizing and drives people to one position or another. The, the thing that I want to talk about today is something that affects a lot of people. In some ways, the, the size of this room, that there's, there's a few people that have probably been impacted by this thing that we're going to talk about today. Part of the reason why I approach it so carefully and so delicately is because, unfortunately, this has become a political thing, but it never should have. What we're going to talk about today is, 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 a, is, a, is a biblical thing. It's a human thing. It's a moral thing. And I don't know if you notice this or not, but when biblical human moral things become political things, kind of everybody loses. We talk about what we're talking about today with delicacy because in a world where there are so many opinions and so many things being thrown around, I don't have an interest in just adding an opinion. I don't care about just being heard for the sake of saying that I was heard. I just think that God has a lot to say about this issue. When I talk to people, sometimes they ask, why, why do churches and pastors, why do they even spend time on this issue. And I'm convinced there's two reasons, at least for me, there's two reasons. The first reason is really just an understanding how God and his word has established and set up a society to to run. 
Okay, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible talks about that there are three institutions that God has established. The first uh, is the government. This isn't in any particular order, but one of those institutions is the government. And the government's job is to protect people and to keep order. The second institution is the family. The family's job is to, to take care of the physical needs um, of people within the household and to kind of take care of themselves um, and to raise new generations. And the third institution that God has established is the church. And the church's job is to provide a moral compass for society and to minister to the spiritual needs that a society might face. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but if the church or if the family abdicates their responsibility or if they get lazy in their responsibility, then by virtue of process of elimination, what happens is, is the government steps in to meet that need. And listen, that's not like an anti-government. I'm not making a political statement there. It's, it's just by virtue of the government's job is to protect people and provide order. And so if the family isn't doing it and if the church isn't doing it and if the family and the church is abdicating certain responsibilities, it creates disorder. And so the government's responsibility is to step into that and to create order and safety in the midst of it. And so it's critical that, that families do their job and churches do their job. And part of the job of a church and part of the, the role of a pastor is to speak to what God says about God's issues, to speak to what God has to say about gospel biblical issues and to speak to things that, that, that are a human issue. And the problem is, is that anytime a church or a pastor starts talking about these things and people go, oh, there they go again. The church is getting political, you know, separation of church and state, which can I just talk about that for a, for a second? Like nowhere is that in any of our governmental documents. It was recorded in a letter from Jefferson to somebody else. And he was talking about protecting the church from the state. It's a separate issue. I'm not going to get too far on that soapbox. The point is, is that there is this misnomer that anytime a pastor or a church starts talking about these issues, that there's a thought process that all oh, the church is getting political. Can I just tell you something? That's not what's happening here. The church has allowed the government to make a church issue political because the church was not upholding the moral standard on the issue. And when the church house gets lazy and when the church house abdicates their responsibility and when the church house is no longer willing to speak on gospel issues, biblical issues that affect morality and affect humanity, then what happens is, is the government's going to look at that and go, oh, well, there used to be order there, but now there's not. The church has left. We have to step in because our job is to keep order. So I'm not hating on the government, just helping you see how that happens. The second reason for me, why this is a particular issue that I am passionate about speaking to is because almost all of the elements that are present in most instances on this subject matter that we're going to talk about today were present in my life. And I very well could have been a victim of it, but I wasn't. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. As we get started, I think it's also essential for everybody here and for everybody that may watch this online to understand that, that my primary job is not a pastor. My primary job is not to be a husband. My primary job is not to be a father. My primary job is not to be a son, a friend, an uncle, a mentor. My primary responsibility is to be a follower of Jesus. First and foremost, and everything else falls in line after that. And as a follower of Jesus, I have spent more than half of my life 
reading and studying this book. And there's a lot of claims that this book makes, but the central most parts of the claims that this book makes has to do with who is Jesus. And as I've read this book and studied this book and see about how it prophesied that Jesus was going to come and, and how it talked about how Jesus was born of a virgin and how he, he came because he was sent by God, moved from compassion for the sins of humanity and for the condition of humanity, and that he came and lived a perfect life and he, he died a sinless death and he was crucified on the cross to pay for my sins and he rose from the grave to give me a new life and to give me a new hope and how he promised he was coming back. And when I read the claims of this book about Jesus, I begin to find that they're true. Because I find that they're true, I have to begin to take this book at its word and begin to take it seriously. What that means is, is that I believe that this book is not just a book. I believe this is God's word. I believe it is inspired by him, breathed by him. I believe that it's without error, and I believe that it is the final say of truth on matters of humanity and spirituality and life. And that sounds really good until I get to a part that I don't like. When I get to a part where I look at that and go, you know, I wouldn't have done it that way. When I get to a part that mandates that I change something about what I do, what I say, what I think, what I participate in, what I allow myself to be involved in, it works good until I realize that my, it demands that my thoughts and opinions begin to shift and change to line up with this instead of trying to make this line up with my thoughts and opinions. And it's all good until I realize that maybe, just maybe, some of my political views are in contradiction to God's views and his expectation is that a follower of Jesus is that I would align my views with his word. It's significant that I also acknowledge I'm a hypocrite. I'm not perfect, I don't have it all together, and I screw up way more than my pride would want me to admit. And so as a follower of Jesus who, who holds this word to be the defining line, the plumb line of things, as someone who is not perfect, who oftentimes screws things up and messes things up, I also approach this subject matter from the perspective of understanding that not everybody believes the way that I do because they don't believe this book the way that I do. But what I hope you'll see that as we dive into this subject matter that I have not just developed thoughts and ideas in a, in, in a perspective just based on what makes me feel good. I haven't developed an opinion based off what feels right. I haven't developed an opinion based off of what my mom said or what my dad said or what my wife thinks, what my physician thinks, what scientists say, that I, I've, I've come to this conclusion after carefully studying God's word and realizing God has some very bold and loud things to say about the thing that we're gonna talk about today. And so if you're here and you don't think like I do, you don't believe like I do, and you don't behave like I do, I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that you'll see that when it comes to significant issues, we have to be willing to look to something higher than just my feelings and my emotion to dictate and drive and define what I think, what I do, what I believe, and what I advocate for. You're thinking, okay, enough with the suspense. What are we talking about? Today, I want to very delicately and very carefully, but 
based on the authority of God's word very boldly. Step into the arena that's been built over the last 45 years where there's been lots of opinions, lots of political posturing, lots of lives impacted, lots of people affected, and a lot of emotional turmoil that's been faced, all centered around the subject of abortion. Now, as soon as I say that, I believe that there's at least four perspectives that are represented in the room. And depending on your perspective, you immediately have a, a preconceived notion about what I'm going to say, what we're going to talk about, and whether or not you're going to like anything that I have to say or whether or not you're going to be super excited about what I have to say. But I think if you'll listen in, I think you might be surprised. And so I've titled this message Unspoken because I believe that if it were possible for any of the 62 million babies that have been aborted since 1973 when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, I believe if it were possible for any of those babies to be able to pray out loud, if it was possible for any of those babies to be able to speak, if it was possible for us to hear any of their prayers, I believe that we would be able to understand that there have been at least 62 million unspoken prayer requests. Would you please listen to what God says? Would you please hear what he has to say about this subject? And so as best I possibly can, I wanna, wanna bring God's perspective to the table. And as I do, I wanna do so by addressing each of the four perspectives that I believe are represented on this issue. And the first perspective is the perspective of anybody who is post-abortive. It's been the victim of sexual assault or incest or rape. And I believe if it were possible for God to be here in the flesh today, if he were sitting here in this chair and not me, and if he, well, he probably wouldn't need a microphone, but I believe if he could speak to you, if that's you, I believe that you would see tears on his face and a broken heart for the way that somebody felt like they could twist and manipulate something to make you a tool and to violate you in the most evil possible way. And I believe that God would say, I'm mad about that. I believe that God would say, I'm angry that that has happened to you. I believe that God would say, I'm sorry. And if I were to sit down and talk with you one-on-one, -on -one, I would tell you how sorry I am. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened. I don't know the situation or the circumstance, but in all probability, that has been a thing that has played a massive role in defining who you are. It's shaped the way that you view and perceive yourself. I've sat across the table from people who have been the victims of sexual assault and it has affected their marriage. It's affected their ability in the way that they parent. It's affected their ability to be able to believe or trust anybody. And it's certainly affected the way that they've interacted with God. And I just believe if God were here today, he would want you to know that he's sorry and he's brokenhearted. I know I am. That should not have happened to you. And there will never be a, 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 a good enough explanation as to why it happened to you. 
Words can never be adequate to appease or dissolve the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and the anger and the hurt and the emotional baggage that you have carried from the moment that that thing happened. But when I think about you, I think about King David. Now, if you've spent any time in church, then you know David went on to be the king of Israel. He was the guy who, who took on Goliath when he was just a boy. He was, he was the guy who, who uh, you know, was, was mighty in battle. I mean, he was a beast on the battlefield. You think of King David, you think about the guy who, who God said in his own word was a man after my own heart. You think about King David, you probably think about when he totally screwed it up with Bathsheba and then conspired to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. Maybe when you think of King David, you think about the man that God entrusted the blueprints for his temple to. But probably what you don't think of when you think of King David, if you were to read the headline of his story and if you were to to choose the the description of the headline of, of King David's life, you probably would not choose King David a victim. But he was. Not a sexual assault. But he was the victim of a man at the hands of a man named Saul who sought on numerous occasions to kill him without really any just cause other than the fact that he just didn't like him. On two specific occasions, it says that King Saul picked up a spear and chucked it at David's head. But David was like, you know, kung fu fighting and got out of there. And so obsessed was King Saul that he then took his entire army of of Israel to chase and pursue David through the wilderness for no other reason than to track him down, capture him, and kill him. But you see, that's not the headline of David's story. And I believe what God would want you to know is that if you were a victim, that it doesn't have to be the headline of your story that you don't have to allow the one who victimized you to continue to define what the headline of your story will read, that in Christ there is hope, in Christ there is a future, in Christ there is freedom, in Christ there is healing, in Christ there is ability to be able to move beyond that, in Christ there is even an ability to extend forgiveness to the one who so cruelly and viciously wronged you. And that just as King David would not be defined, his epitaph will not be a victim. His epitaph will be a conqueror, a warrior, mighty in battle, a man after God's own heart, a man who was imperfect, but entrusted with the temple plans to the temple of God. So too can your epitaph and your headline be different. It will not have to always read a victim that there is a hope for you and that there is future for you if you will lean into Jesus. The second perspective that I want to speak to today is that any woman who is post-abortive for any reason, here's what I know about you. I know that there are lots of people who talk about you, not you by name and not you specifically, but, but you as a generality of this people group that you represent as a part of the millions of women who have, for whatever reason, have chosen to get an abortion. What I know about you is that the pro-choice movement 
upholds you, not you specifically by name, but you in generality as a heroine. You took responsibility, made a decision for your own body. It's your body. Nobody can tell you what to do. And the pro-life movement has villainized you and never to your face and never by name, but will call you a murderer. And politicians and political pundits use the general description of you and your story as the fuel for their, their posturing and political debate and, 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 and opposition to other people who don't believe the way that they do. But what I know about you is that none of them know you. None of them think about you and the thoughts that you thought when you walked into that room. None of them care about you when it comes to the way that you felt as that procedure was taking place. None of them even think about the emotions and the things that you felt when you walked out. You see, in the midst of all of the, the hot air that gets blown around this deal, what gets lost in it is you. And of the women that I've talked to who have, who have abortion in their story and in their past, none of them have ever told me about how they skipped for joy into the room and then just leapt for joy with a smile of joy on their face as they left. You see, that's what happens when moral issues become political issues. Everybody loses, and especially you. But here's what else I know. They may not see you individually. They may not know your name. They may not care about your story, but Jesus does. I'm reminded of what happened in John chapter eight with a woman that was caught in adultery. I preached a message on this just a few weeks ago on Easter, but this woman who was, who, what was used as a tool by the Pharisees, they were trying to entrap Jesus and, and get him into a spot so they can, they can accuse him or convict him of something to get him out of the scene. And so they catch this woman in adultery and they treat her like trash and they throw her at the feet of Jesus across this whole deal in front of all these people. And what happens is, is Jesus does not respond to her immediately. He responds to them. I think that's appropriate because for you, if abortion is a part of your story, it's significant that you need to understand that it's unfortunate that, that whatever the situation was that led to that, that, that you should never have been led into that situation that caused you to get pregnant. That you never should have, have chosen the options that led you to that. And when you chose to get an abortion, it should have been something that was never on the radar. It was never an option. And so in the same way that Jesus did not look at the woman and start speaking at her and pointing his finger at her and how dare you, what's the matter with you? No, what does he do? He looks to the Pharisees and in the same kind of way, I believe if Jesus were here today, he would look past you, sweetheart, and he would speak to the culture and he would speak to society and he would say, woe to you who have normalized and naturalized this that has made it even possible that it's a part of the conversation about what is normal in the process of sexual relations and woe to you as a society if you have because you have so um, uh, walked outside of the bounds and the safety lines that God has built around the subject matter of sex and, and you have so um, um, placated and become so natural and become so, so flippant about something that is so sacred that has led to the point of you being in that situation. And as Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, they finally begin to leave and 
he speaks to the woman and says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? And she looks around and she goes, there's nobody. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. What is he doing? He's leading with grace. But he follows with truth. He says, go and sin no more. What does that mean for you? It means that if God were here today, I believe that he would say, yes, abortion is wrong. Yes, it is sinful. You simply cannot make a biblical case for abortion that justifies it in any way. But there's grace at the foot of the cross for you. And listen to me. Your stuff might just be more public than my stuff. It might be more popular to talk about than my stuff. But listen to me. You don't need Jesus any more than I do. I'm all kinds of messed up. And I need Jesus on the regular to forgive me, to remind me that he set me free, that I do not have to live a life of sin. I don't have to choose those things. And just like with you, I believe that Jesus would lead with grace to listen, I, I forgive you. If you will come to me, I will forgive you for the thing that you did. But listen to me, go and sin no more. Whatever that lifestyle is that you've been leading that has caused you to get into a situation where you've gotten pregnant and you weren't planning on it, listen, go and sin no more. Change the way that you're living. Is adultery wrong? Yes, it is. Is it sinful? Yes, it is. And if it's a part of your story, God sent Jesus to die for it so that you don't have to carry the weight of it and you don't have to live with the shame of it and you don't have to continue to live with the emotional heartache and turmoil that you have because of it. The third perspective that I want to address today is the pro-choice advocate. Listen, I get it. it. Abortion's not a linear issue. As much as we want to make it one, it's not a linear issue. I understand that there are lots of situations where abortion has become a part of the conversation because of a hardship that a woman or a young lady has faced. I get that there are situations where someone was made a victim. I get that there are situations where, where the mom's life is at stake. I get that there are situations, excuse me, where, where perhaps um, a single mom is, is in a situation that she's pregnant again and she's got other kids she's responsible for and for her to go through with it is going to have to cause her to, 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 to stay out of work and by staying out of work she's going to lose her job. She loses her job. She can't provide for her kids. Like, listen, I get it. There's all types of hardships that go into this. I understand But I think that we have to come back to a deeper issue in understanding that we have to stop shaping the way that we view this child based off of the surroundings and the situations that led to the miraculous thing that is its conception. And we have to start viewing this child as the miraculous thing that it is. A supernatural connection of life. 
And so if you, as, as, as my friends who, who may or may, who, who are pro-choice in your advocacy and in your posturing, just let me ask the question, to what authority are you basing your perspective on? Because in matters of life and death, we can't just always rely on emotion and feeling and what makes me feel good. We can't just go with the tide of society about, about well, where's, where's the wind blowing? I'll go with where the wind is blowing. And for me, I don't make the decision based off of what makes me feel good or what I feel is right or what I feel like that woman deserves that she should go through because of what she did or whatever, whatever. No, I, I appeal to a higher authority. I appeal to God's word. And I want you to notice what God's word says in Psalm 139. In verse 13, it says this, for you, this, this is David speaking to God, for you formed my inward parts. Elsewhere in scripture, it says that, that God knit us together. And it says that you covered me when I was in my mother's womb. It goes on to say in verse 15, and my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. That's such a curious phrase. Because what is, what is in view here is that the earliest stages and the earliest days of our lives are in secret where nobody knows that we exist yet. That mom is yet to take a pregnancy test. She's yet to realize that she's late, that we are, we are formed and we are knit together by God in the earliest stages in secret when not even the mother knows that there's something miraculous happening inside of her. And it says, and I was skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. What is this saying? Well, ultimately, this is connecting to the heart of the debate for most people. At what point does a clump of cells become a person? Because most sane and rational people aren't advocating that we go pull the kids out of the, 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 the nursery place in the hospital and we start killing them. Nobody's advocating for that. Because we acknowledge and recognize that well, it's alive and I can see it and it's visible, it's animate. But what I want to help you see is that the, that clump of cells is so much more than just a clump of cells that appear to be inanimate and appear to have no life and appear to have no form of human beingness. That that clump of cells that we call a clump of cells, that some call a clump of cells, is actually this supernatural thing where God has allowed an egg to be fertilized by a sperm, and at that moment, the miraculous beginnings of life has happened. Now, we may argue and debate and quibble over whether or not is it a human life at that point or not. We can argue over that, but what we can't argue about is that the process of life begins at the moment that an egg is fertilized by that sperm. And it's not an accident, regardless of the situation that led to its conception, it is not an accident. God has seen fit to allow that egg to be fertilized by that sperm so the process of life can begin. Why? Because God has a purpose for that life. Let's connect the dots from Psalm 139 to Ephesians 2.10 and notice what it says. It says, for we are his workmanship, meaning that God created us and we are created in Christ, meaning Christ was actively engaged in the knitting together of the cells that make you, you, that created your personality, your physical appearance, your passion, your interests. 
And it said, we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? Well, we have to kind of read this verse backwards to forwards because what it means is as long before that conception moment took place, God was in heaven looking around going, what do I need in my kingdom? I need that. And once he realized what he needed, he began to put you together. And you were put together not on accident, but on purpose for a purpose. And part of the story of life and part of the mystery of life is understanding why am I here and what is my purpose? It's one of the things we're passionate about at our church, helping people discover what their purpose is. And so I'm simply posturing to you, not just posturing, but, but offering to you as my pro-choice friends. On whose authority are you basing your opinions? Because lives hang in the balance. I was listening to someone a few weeks ago talking about a situation about this young girl who had gotten pregnant and talking about what it means, what it's going to mean for her. And there's a pro-choice person in, in the conversation. They go, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why don't you just, why don't they just abort it? There was a pro-life person in the circle who I know had been struggling with infertility for a couple of years and they raised their hand and said, because we would gladly love to have a baby. You see, what I'm trying to help you see, friends, is that just like the pro-life issue and the abortion issue is not linear, neither is the pro-choice issue. It's complicated and it's convoluted. And every time we, we allow an abortion to take place, we're not only killing a baby, but we are robbing a family that has been praying for a child the opportunity to be parents. What I'm hoping that you'll see is that in the midst of all of the, the conversation about all the nuances and all the hardships and all the various different things that go into it, we just have to look at facts and recognize that, that all of that conversation is less than 5% statistically of abortion cases and that over 95% of abortion cases are situations where someone decided they were gonna go have fun. Someone decided that they were gonna view sex flippantly. Someone decided, hey, this sounds good. I'm hot, you're hot. Let's be hot together. Let's just have a good time. It's just sex. It doesn't matter. And then, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. I'm late. I, I don't know what to do. And this is gonna ruin my plans and my parents are gonna kill me and I don't want this. And I've got these other things and I've got these hopes and these dreams and aspirations. Listen to me. We have to start talking about the reality that the overwhelming vast majority of abortions are not connected to hardship. It is connected to somebody who made a decision to have fun and is now no longer wanting to live with the fruit that has come from that decision. Amen. And as much as we talk about giving a woman the choice, have we ever thought about the impact that that life could have if given the chance to live. I told you at the beginning that I'm passionate about this issue because it affects me because the truth of it is is that all of the markers of the most, the common abortion situations were present in my mom. 
You see, my mom and dad were freshmen in college, not married, kind of dating, kind of seeing each other, but not even interested in marriage at the time. I was talking to my mom this week, questions I've never really asked her, like, hey, when did you find out? What was your first thought? What did my dad say when you told him? What did your parents say? What did his parents say? Why did you choose to, to keep me and why did you not choose to get an abortion? What was it like? Was it, was it a hard decision or easy decision? And here's what she told me. She said, listen, you know, for, for, for us, abortion just wasn't really part of the conversation. I had enough of a faith background to know that God viewed that as a special thing and that, that it just wasn't an option for me to kill it. And she said, you know, a lot of people view that, that, that getting pregnant is, is this major life-altering, life-ruining, life-wrecking situation. But she would say for her, it was a life-saving situation. She went on to tell me about the things that her and my dad were doing. They were not following Jesus. They were not living for Jesus. They were living fast and loose and hard. And man, they were headed down a bad road. And she said, you know what? I believe that me getting pregnant with you was God's gift to me to save me from the life that I was headed to. It forced me to grow up. It forced me to stop thinking about myself. It forced me to start thinking about other people and not just me, but also your dad. And I can think of at least four people that live in, in my house that are thankful that I was given a chance. And I would like to believe there's at least one or two people in the room that were thankful that I was given the chance. To my pro-choice friends, I believe if God would say something to you, I believe he would say, listen to me. Life begins at conception. All of biology and science proves that. Stop philosophizing around it. The fourth and final perspective that I want to address and approach today are my fellow pro-life advocates. I believe if God were here today, I believe that he would tell you that your cause is just. But when you act like an idiot about it, you do a disservice to the cause that you're advocating for. When you stupidly post on social media these things that blast the pro-choice movement and people who have had abortions without ever realizing that there are real people with real stories, with real emotions, with real shame that they carry with the decision that they made regardless of the situation that led them there that are alienated by your words from Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, I can have the tongue of angels and speak in a heavenly language, but if I have not love, then my words are like a sounding gong and a loud cymbal. It is useless and it is annoying. And your efforts bear no fruit. In fact, you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. I'll take it a step further and say if on the same device that you post your 
pro-life and you're anti-pro-choice and, and you retweet some of the things that are getting posted around there and you share the things on Facebook that are being around there. And at some point within the same 24 or 36 hours, you've been looking at pornography. Let me just tell you, friend, you're part of the problem. Because ultimately, by and large, abortion is a symptom of a much deeper problem, which is how flippantly we view and regard the sacredness of sex. And the reason we are as a society where we are is because we in the church have allowed the things of the world to come into our lives and to come into our hearts and to come onto our cell phones and to come into our marriages and to come into our homes. And that we've allowed adultery and we've allowed pornography and we've allowed fornication to come into the household of faith. And we have discredited Christ and we've discredited his message and we've discredited the word that he gave us to live by. You say, man, it sounds like you're more angry at us than you are the people who are having abortions. You're darn right I am. Because we're supposed to be the moral compass and we're supposed to be the shining light and we're supposed to declare truth. But when we are advocating for a position while at the same time contributing to the problem, we're getting nowhere, friends. And I'm frustrated because for over a decade, I struggled with my own porn issues and I was advocating this pro-life stuff while contributing to the problem. And it wasn't until God finally allowed me to get victory and I began to make some hard decisions, some hard choices to get freedom in that area of my life that I began to realize how stupid and how foolish and how much of a disservice I was being to the cause of Christ because of my hypocrisy and inconsistency. I believe if God was here today, I believe he would say to our pro-life friends, talk is cheap and words come easy. So don't just post your words. Don't just have your debate points. Take action. You say, well, it sounds like you're just, you know, using talking points, pastor. So, just following your lead here. Well, I'm not. I have this. You don't. And I get to be in a position where I can influence change. I don't know what it looks like for you to influence change, but I know what it looks like for me that I'm excited to start partnering our church with an organization called Rachel House, which is a crisis pregnancy center where we can get active and we can get involved and we can be a part of the solution instead of just adding to the noise of what the problem is. You're going to hear more from them on June 16th. They're going to be here. They're going to have a booth in the lobby. We're going to have a pop-up shop. All of our proceeds that day are going to go directly to Rachel House. If you want to make a contribution, a donation, man, by all means do it. But we want to let you know of an organization that's on the front lines that's trying to make a difference to save babies and to help young ladies and help girls that are going through hardship, to help them see that they have a support, they have a community, they can get through it, and there's more than one option to the situation that they're currently facing. And what I hope will be for the next 20, 30 years in partnership between us and them, I hope that what we're able to do financially on June 16th is just a small fraction of what will come in the next 20 years as we don't just talk about it, but we are about it. And we put our money where our mouth is and we get up behind it and become a part of the solution. 
I want to close today with a story. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Peru. And on our time there, we got a chance to go to this place called Machu Picchu. Now, you've maybe heard of Machu Picchu. I had never heard of Machu Picchu. Um, apparently, I was one of you know, four people in America that had never heard of Machu Picchu. Uh, maybe the other three are in the room right now. I don't know. But Machu Picchu is one of the seven wonders of the modern world. It's this incredible community that the Inca people built in the Andes Mountains in Peru. And we were there, we were the tour guide and seeing these amazing things and how they were able to piece all this stuff together. And, you know, with such primitive technology, they were able to, to build these homes and these, these buildings with no mortar, just carved stone. How they carved granite with copper, I don't know, but they did. And I was just fascinated. And so in the days following, I just began to do research, learn more about the Inca people. What did they do? What were their ways? What were their practices? What was their religious practices? And not surprisingly, they worshiped the mountains as one of their gods. And listen, if you've ever had a chance to be there, I mean, it's no wonder. I mean, it is, it is surreal, the beauty of these mountains. And I began to learn, do research on their religious practices. What did they do? They worshiped the mountains as God. And one of the things that they would do to appease the, the God mountains or the mountain gods, whichever way you want to put it, is they would offer sacrifices these sacrifices involved kids normally born of nobility. There was quite literally a selection process to select the best in stature, in position, in appearance, in health. Then they would take those kids to the capital city of Cusco where the emperor was and the emperor would, would have to sign off on it and he always signed off on these situations and they would take these kids a long journey up to the peak of whatever mountain peak that they were going to for that particular sacrifice. And they would build a base camp and they would stay there for a little bit and they would put the kids on a royal diet, kind of fatten them up a little bit and they would send someone up to the top of the mountain peak, normally 13, 14, 15, 17,000 feet high. And they would build a place for their sacrifice. Essentially, it was a tomb. And just before they would begin the journey from the base camp to the place where the sacrifice was, they would begin to fill these kids with beer and these coca leaves, which is where cocaine derives from, to medicate them and to ease the pain and ease their nerves. They would take these kids up to the top of these mountains and they would go through this whole process. They would, they would dress them in the finest of clothes and make sure the hair was right. The, the girls who, who, who were part of it, they would, they would intricately braid and, and weave their hair and they would bring artifacts from their town or wherever they were from, their camp was. And then as the final steps of the process, they would do one of three things. They would, they would either bash the back of their heads in to knock them out or they would strangle them to asphyxiate them and archaeological evidence shows that if kids were fighting back if they weren't complicit then they would they would bind their hands and their feet together so that they couldn't fight back In one such case, archaeologists have found on the clothes of one of the boys, a six-year-old boy, 
almost the age of my son. His hands bound and his feet tied. And they found blood and vomit on his clothes. They say that the only reason that would have happened is if he fought. Imagine, six-year-old boy fighting for his life. Once the kids were unconscious, they would take the kids and they would place them in the tomb and they would close it. And they were at such a high elevation that they would freeze to death. They did this because they thought that they were helping their child get to the spirit world. And for the moms and the dads, this would have considered a great honor. Because they didn't think that their, their child was dying. They thought their child was moving to a, a higher level of existence to, to serve as a guardian of the mountains. And research of the Inca culture tells us that they did this when an emperor died, when an emperor had a new son that was born. They would do it during times of, of war. They would do it during times of famine. And they had two times a year that was built into their calendar where they would do this. As I was researching this and putting this together this week, I had to, I had to walk away. I literally physically had to go do something else because it was just so heartbreaking and so disgusting. We live in a civilized society that would look at that and go, how cruel, how harsh, how could they do that? How could you possibly offer a child as a sacrifice to a mountain that you worship as a God? That's ridiculous, but I'm here to tell you that we have been doing this for a long time. We've been sacrificing our children at the altar of sex, at the altar of self, and at the altar of convenience. And if God could speak here from heaven, I believe he would say, this is not okay. And I believe that God would want us to do more than just talk about it. I believe that God would want us to be more concerned than just what we hear from politicians on Fox News and CNN. I believe that God would want us to take action, to be a part of the solution. And I want to throw six things at you that, man, if this is resonating you, if this is burdening your heart and burdening your soul, I want to give you six things that I believe that you can do. You can start right now to be a part of the solution. And the first is, listen, we need to absolutely advocate for and celebrate legislation that protects the lives of the unborn. But do not let your advocacy for legislation outweigh your passion for the unborn. Don't be like everybody else that's just bloviating hot air. The counterpoint is always, well, then what if all these kids were here? What would happen to society? 
62 million more kids? What would happen to welfare? What would happen to our orphanages? What would happen to single moms? What would happen to the poverty rate? To which I would have to apologize and say, I'm sorry that the church hasn't stepped up. I believe the second thing that you can do is be a person, a human, with those things called feelings and emotions. And stop being a robot and stop being an idiot and emotionally, stupidly, without any concern about how our words of impact or affect other people, just blasting harmful and hurtful things on social media against those who've had an abortion. Number three, spring yourself into action by getting involved with organizations like Rachel House, getting involved with organizations like Alliance for Life, getting involved with, with organizations that are, that are advocating for, for post-abortive women to help them through their emotional struggles and their depression and the, the hardship that they've been dealing with. Get actively involved with organizations in our community that are building relationships with young people so that they can have strong people, people of faith, people of, of the word that can, that can love them and lead them and point them to Jesus and help them to know that those decisions that you're making that are leading you down the wrong road are not what's best for you, that there is another option and that there is hope for you. If God is leading you or if God has been putting on your heart to foster or to adopt, stop running from it and say yes. Listen, that's not a call that God puts on everybody's life. But all of us have an obligation that whatever God calls us into, we need to respond by saying yes. Because your yes may be the thing that would save that kid from hardship that would lead them to a decision where they would think abortion is an option. And your yes might help ease the burden that fatherlessness and motherlessness and abandonment and isolation has caused on these kids. Number five, if you really want to be about it, invest in the, in the youngest generation. You can do that by serving and Discover Kids, by serving and Discover Students. You can do that by serving at the... Uh, uh, big brothers, big sisters. You can serve at Synergy Services. You can serve at a place like Hillcrest. You can inv get involved and engaged with the next generation. And then lastly, and I don't say this lastly as if, well, well, well I guess we'll, we can't do anything else. We'll just do this. But I save the best for last. Because we can pray. God's word says that if my people are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray, then I will hear their prayer and I will heal their land. Abortion's not a linear issue. It's very complicated and it's very messy. But at the heart of it all is a whole lot of hurt and a whole lot of pain. May we pray for hope and healing for those that are hurting and struggling. In fact, I want to take time to do this right now. If you're able, I want to invite you to make your chair your altar. Would you, would you turn around and, and get on your knees and, and spend a moment in your prayer? And as a church, let's just spend a moment in prayer together. 
for our nation. Spend a moment in prayer for our country. Spend a moment in prayer for those that are hurting. Spend a moment in prayer for those that feel like they have no hope. Spend a moment in prayer for those that have no voice. And let's pray that God would bring healing to our land and healing to our society. Would you, would you bow with me?